All right, we hope that you're great today and enjoyed that worship set. And are once again so glad that you've chosen to join us for service today. Now today what we're doing is we're actually ending our series, which we've been going through, entitled Majesty, where we've been talking about the greatness, the grandeur, the splendor, and the authority of the God that we serve, Jesus Christ, His Son, and who we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. And over the Advent and Christmas season, going into this new year, we've been reflecting on this God because we want to not only worship Him out of routine or in a rote fashion, but we want to know why we worship Him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we're going to discuss that today on uh, this very special day, which is on the heels of a Christian holiday which took place this past Thursday. Every January 6th, especially if you've come from a Latino culture, there is what is called Three Kings Day or Epiphany Day, where we're celebrating the wise men who came from afar to worship Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords at His first coming. Now, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you might be familiar with the nativity scenes that might have been located out of a neighborhood church, outside of a neighborhood church. And you might have seen the three wise men who came presenting gifts to Jesus as a baby and were really honoring him as Lord. Well, today what we're doing is we're going to utilize um, that particular encounter that the Magi or the wise men had with Jesus, and we're going to really understand why they were provoked as opposed to another king during that period of time named Herod to worship Jesus as Lord. And we're going to find out what it means to us today as we're uh, really confronted with and introduced to the majesty of Jesus. What type of response should that evoke from us on a daily basis as we go into the new year? And so today we're going to focus on this statement that we will worship Jesus with full devotion when we recognize his majesty trumps that which the world exalts. We're going to break the message down into three parts today to discuss this. First, we're going to tap into the words of one of the Old Testament prophets named Isaiah, who prophesied about 700 years before Jesus, and actually even his book was many times referenced as the fifth gospel because he spoke so much about the Messiah who would come to be Savior of the world. And we're going to find in his words an unusual attraction that God provided for us in the Messiah that was different from that which the world generally and typically finds attractive. Secondly, we're going to find um, about we're going to talk about the two responses that we can have when that attractiveness of Christ is revealed to us. Will we respond like Herod the king who felt threatened during his time, or will we respond like the Magi, the wise men who came from a great distance to worship Jesus? We're going to talk about those two responses. And then finally, we're going to talk about Jesus, his majesty, and the second coming of Christ. Because ultimately, our world needs to be transformed by what we see in Jesus and the majesty that he presents to us. So before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. And we thank you that you've given it to us, that we might see you clearly. And regardless of what we have or have not known about you, God, you are pleased to reveal yourself to us. You're a self-revelatory God. And God, as you choose to reveal yourself to us today by your word, may we honor you, may we worship you, and may we have our lives transformed by you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
Okay, so let's start with talking about the unusual attraction that there is in Jesus Christ. First, we need to understand that the qualities for which we worship Jesus are not actually the things that the world exalts. Many times the world has things that attract people to itself and it attracts people to its ways, but Jesus was altogether different. But his ways, or as we see Isaiah speaking about over and over again, were higher than our ways and better than our ways. His thoughts were greater than our thoughts. And here we see him talking about it in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. It says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, meaning Christ, grew up before him, meaning God the Father, like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he, meaning the Christ, the Messiah, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, though, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." And so, really, at the beginning of the day, we see that the very God that Jesus is and the very person that we're being drawn to, to worship, he, the qualities that draw us to him are based on an unusual attraction. So we start by asking the question, what does the world actually usually find appealing and attractive? Think about it. It might be the people that you find appealing or attractive in your everyday encounters in the workplace or in your neighborhood, in your social groups, maybe on social media or in the media at large. And the question is what draws people to spend hours flipping through social media or fantasizing about a different life other than the one that they're presently leading now? It's often some sort of appeal or something that they're esteeming that they find attractive that they want to be a part of. Well, what the scripture is saying above is that there would have been nothing in the natural, nothing in the natural, that if we actually had any type of pricking or any type of sensitivity or found ourselves in a place seeking God, according to Isaiah, there would have been nothing in the natural that made Jesus appealing to us. Think about that for a moment. The things that made Jesus Savior were actually contrary to what the world valued. And that's an important statement because of the fact that if we're going to serve God as He is, the Creator of the universe, we've got to know the one that we're coming to is altogether different than that which we might have had a lust for before. And the thing, the very description of Jesus would have been the things that we as people naturally not gravitate toward, but run from. And in the world, we see that we hate some of the descriptions that were attached to Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, according to Isaiah, he was a man of suffering and sorrows. But what about us? We hate suffering and we try to avoid grief. 
we often have a low tolerance for sorrows, whether in our lives or in the lives of the people who surround us. But what we see, according to Isaiah, is that these are the very things that Jesus took up to heal us in his life and at the cross. That Jesus, being the God and the Savior of all mankind, came to be a man familiar with grief, who carried our sorrows, and literally, even in the midst of doing that for us, by the world that was surrounding him during his earthly ministry, he was despised by and rejected by. Why? Because nobody wanted to associate with a man who is constantly sorrowful. Nobody wanted to associate with a man who was crucified on a cross. Nobody wanted to associate with uh, somebody who the world at large was rejecting. But that's the very Jesus, the very God of heaven and earth who put on flesh to come and carry our sorrows, to come and carry our rejection, to come and carry our grief and despair so that he might save us. And it is that which would have repelled us away from and caused us to overlook Jesus that actually saved us. It was that which would have caused us to reject and be repelled by Jesus that actually saved us. The scripture said he had no beauty that we should desire him. No beauty that we should desire him. And this is a sobering statement because if you think about God coming in the flesh, you would have thought that he would have come like a male model, <laughs> right? Ripped and handsome, glowing all the time. And that there would be something in the natural that would have been appealing about him. But he chose to come in a different manner. That when Jesus showed up on the scene, what he was ultimately saying is that there wouldn't be something naturally attractive about him that made him the most handsome person you ever saw. You might have overlooked him if you passed him on the street. If you were only looking for the beauty of God in his natural appearance. He said there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. And why would he allow himself to come in that manner? So that he can relate to every man and every woman in the world and allow them to esteem what's most important to him and not the faulty, shallow things of the world. And could it be that in our superficial attractions, our shallow affections, and our surface-level attachments, we could also miss Jesus today if he were to live and move amongst us. Obviously, we know that after his crucifixion, Jesus died for the sins of humanity. He was buried and then he rose again, according to the scriptures. And then he ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God until he makes his return to judge the living and the dead. But he's still moving today by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit working to accomplish the Father's will. But the question is, is will we recognize him or will, he, we, will we miss him? Well, we will miss him if we prioritize things other than what God esteems. And so what questions should we ask ourselves to, um, um, to make sure, time and again, that we don't miss what Jesus wants to do in and through our lives? Well, the questions we should ask are, number one, what does the world characterize as beauty? And what are the differences between what God characterizes as majestic 
and what the world actually esteems. Because according to the scripture, there's a difference between the two. And if we want God, ultimately we want the eternal life that he's offering us, we've got to make a distinction between the two and gravitate towards that which God himself esteems. For example, the world often exalts certain culturally derived standards of physical beauty. Things like putting oneself forward and having a perceived strength in the ability to best your competition. Those are all the things that the world would applaud and say, this is desirable, I want to be a part of that. I want to be on the winning team, right? I want to be on the winning team. Well, if you looked at Jesus in his life, earthly ministry, and ultimately his death on the cross prior to his resurrection from the dead, you wouldn't have considered, nor did his disciples at the time, consider that he was part of the winning team or the author of the winning team. But it was only later in his resurrection from the dead that people actually understood what he had come to do, that he had in fact defeated death, Satan, and the grave for the glory of the Father and ultimately for the saving of the lives of those who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him. But to be able to see that, we had to come a different way. What we see is that Jesus, according to Isaiah, was holy and altogether different. Jesus came as the standard of beauty, as the creator of all heaven and earth. He, the Bible says that there was nothing that was made except through him. And he came as the standard of beauty, but was unassuming. He was able to boast, but came to lift others up. He was able to dominate, but instead chose to serve. And of all people, Jesus could rightly demand justice from humanity that had offended him and broken his commandments, but he chose to extend mercy. Jesus could have been spiteful to those who rejected, despised, and betrayed him, but expressed kindness and grace instead. He had a pathway to exact retribution, but chose self-sacrifice for our forgiveness at the cross. And the first coming of Christ ultimately displayed Christ's humility. And in the second coming of Christ, the second advent, which we always look forward to, the second advent will actually not just display his humility, but his strength. The majesty which Jesus displayed at his first coming prevented people ultimately, though, from attempting to come to him for the wrong reasons. You remember that at the time of Jesus coming, the Jews at the time were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And they thought that the Messiah who was coming would come to ultimately overthrow through physical force the, uh, the Roman government that stood to oppress them during that time. But what Jesus said is that the issues of humanity and the issues that are really going on aren't external, but they're issues in your heart. And before I come and deal with the evil that's going on externally in the world, I want to deal with the evil that's going on in your own heart. And I want to free you from your slavery and your bondage to sin so that when I bring my judgments, I might look at you as a friend and not a foe. And so Jesus did an in internal work in his first coming at the advent, first advent of Christ to ultimately culminate with an external work, bringing judgment on all of heaven and earth in his second coming. And if you were only coming to God to see what you could get rather than what you could give in worship, the majesty of Jesus would seem undesirable and ultimately the cross of Christ an offense to you. Think about it. 
considering all of his attributes, though no greater picture of God or man exists. What are some of the reasons that people that prevent people from coming to Jesus today? We need to always remember that in our pursuit of God, God often calls what is um, calls beautiful what we say is rejected, and God often calls majestic what we call despised. We want to make sure that we have the right lens and ultimately live with God's perspective. And this brings us to the point that when we are confronted with the majesty of God, there are really only two responses that we can have. And the two responses when we are confronted with the majesty of Jesus are ultimately only rebellion or submission. You have either rebellion coming out of your heart when you're confronted with the majesty of Jesus or submission. And this is what both the Herod the Great and the Magi represented. And in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it said this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we see here two very different responses from Herod and from the Magi in response to the majesty of Jesus being revealed. And what we see is we first that Herod missed. He missed it. He missed the majesty of Jesus because of some of the things that Isaiah was talking about in the prophecy that came before. So what is it that caused Herod to miss the majesty of Jesus and ultimately God's purposes for his life? Well, Jesus didn't come, as I already mentioned, with force and pomp the force and pomp of a military commander. Jesus came instead in humility as a child, and thus Herod thought that he could not rid himself of the need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Herod's response, though, didn't begin with outright rebellion. You need to know that. Historically speaking, it looked like he was in line with the prophetic words and mission of Christ until it challenged Herod's independence and sovereignty. Herod was used to doing things as he wanted and how he wanted, when he wanted, meaning he was his own God, his own ruler. Sound familiar? And he picked and chose how he wanted to associate with God, doing what was right in his own eyes rather than in God's eyes. 
He built the temple for the people. And so he was known as Herod the Great, who literally helped construct a place of worship for them, but was a murderer at the very same time, even a family of anyone who threatened Herod's autonomy. Historically, he was known to be a great benefactor and a great murderer at the same time. And the issue was that Herod did not want his independent rule challenged, whether in Judea, in the country, or in his own life. And Herod responded to the majesty of Jesus with ultimately manipulation and murder. We see that he tried to manipulate the wise men to tell him where Jesus, the Christ, was going to be born, not so that he could really, in truth, come and worship him, but so that he could get rid of him. We see that later in the scripture. And he tried to manipulate the wise men to do so. And when they didn't return to him with the report of where the child was, ultimately we see later in the scripture that he responded with murder, trying to have mass infanticide to get rid of anyone who might be the Christ fall into that age gap where Jesus was ultimately born. The Magi, on the other hand, responded with meekness and marvel. Well, what were the signs of Herod's rebellion? Well, Herod acknowledged the word of God. I think there are three things that we need to recognize about Herod in terms of how he responded to God. He, number one, acknowledged the word of God, but picked and chose what he would obey. That was, the first, that was the root of his rebellion. He acknowledged the word of God saying that the word of God tells us exactly where the child is to be born, but I'm going to pick and choose what I obey from that word when it comes to my own life. Number two, Herod used others to his own advantage to try to preserve his chosen way of life. He was trying to use the Magi to basically say, I'm going to agree and acknowledge the word of God, but then I'm going to get rid of anything that threatens my own self-rule. This was at the root of his rebellion. And then number three, Herod disposed of those who would threaten his autonomy and self-rule, ultimately in the great infanticide. You see that in Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. But it's not just Herod that this is important for. The same happens with people today. And people are willing to acknowledge the reality of Jesus, his coming, and even the mission of Christ but are threatened by the implications of his total rulership in their lives. The question is, which way have you responded? Which way, is, which way have we as a people responded? Because remember, there are only two options that you can re uh, respond feeling threatened to his rule in your life, meaning God's rule in your life, or you can respond being totally submitted to him. Whereas Herod responded with feeling threatened, the Magi, on the other hand, responded with total surrender. So the question is, is, as opposed to Herod, what allowed the Magi to acknowledge the majesty of Jesus? Well, scholars believe that the wise men may have come from the region of Babylon in the east, where the exiles of Israel had been scattered many years before during a period of Israel's judgment. And the Magi were not a part of Israel, but were outside of the citizenship of Israel, but would have been exposed to the word of God, having more than likely heard the prophecies and the good news of the coming Messiah from the Jewish diaspora in the east as they lit, where they lived. They took God at his word, just like Herod did. They took God at his word, but what they did with the word was different. They took God at his word and then humbled themselves. 
they humbled themselves, rearranging their lives to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And the Magi express this by being willing to inconvenience themselves. Almost a dirty word in our culture today, right? If anything's going to inconvenience me, it's got to be wrong. It's got to be evil, right? But no, they chose to accept the word of God and inconvenience themselves. What they wanted to do with their time, their talent, their treasure, what they wanted to do in their relationships to come and honor and worship the Lord, even in his infancy. And what the Magi knew is that the things that the most defined their lives, meaning their time, which was expressed in the great journey, the several hundred mile journey that they took to meet Jesus, and not in a car, not in a powerful railroad or railway system, not in a flight, but on camel and horseback, right? With a caravan at great expense to themselves. They offered their time, their talent, meaning their great learning, looking into the scriptures, looking at the stars, allowing all things to align, and their treasure, meaning the gifts that they presented to Jesus. They were the things they understood that God would look for to receive in their worship. And it's ultimately no different for us today. Whether you've been walking with God for years or really you're just coming to God freshly for the first time in your life, recognizing Jesus as Lord over not some, but all areas of your life. Because as it's often said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, then ultimately in your life, he's not Lord at all. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Either I'm married or I'm not, right? And when I'm married, I forsake all other women because I'm devoted to my wife. Same way with Jesus. He says, if he's not Lord, what the Magi understood is he, if he's not Lord over all areas of life, meaning your time, your talent, your treasure, and even your relationships, then ultimately it's not worship to God. Those things are key to expressing your devotion to this king. And this is what it means to submit to the majesty of Jesus. And just like Herod had three things that exemplified his rebellion, the Magi had at least three things that exemplified their submission. What were those three things? Well, number one, the Magi diligently searched for the meaning of the scripture and how it would apply to each of the aforementioned areas of their lives. Number two, the Magi allowed the scripture to dictate their actions. They didn't just believe the right things, but their understanding of the scripture dictated their actions, making the long trip to meet with and ultimately worship Jesus. So that once again, they inconvenienced themselves, even in their time, in stark contrast to even the American culture, which when we say come to the house of the Lord and come and worship Jesus, Americans in general who are so self-absorbed and self-consumed literally make excuses so that they average 1.4 times a month of church attendance. And how is that building a life of worship around God when he gets the leftovers of your time and everything that comes from it? The Magi were different. And in number three, the Magi lived a life of sacrifice. Yes, sacrifice can often be a dirty word for us in our, uh, in our culture, which is often based on what we feel like we deserve and what we feel like we are owed, right? Our entitlement culture. But they had a culture of sacrifice. 
going to great lengths to offer their time, their treasure, meaning presenting gifts to Jesus and talents in worship of him. They ultimately displayed the attitude of the great king of Israel, David, who was known as a man after God's own heart, and said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I'm not going to offer God my scraps. I'm not going to offer God my leftovers. But if God is king and he's Lord of lords, I'm going to offer him in his majesty my first and my best of everything. Even the gifts they offered Jesus were ultimately them sowing into the cause of Christ. The gold allowed the flight to Egypt that would allow Mary, Joseph, and Jesus to escape the wrath of Herod when he was searching for him. The frankincense and myrrh were used in the process of embalming during burial periods. And what a birthday present that was for Jesus. But what they were recognizing out of Isaiah 52 and 53, that the Messiah would ultimately be born to die. So they were coming into agreement with his work to be Savior of the world. The question for us is, who will we be like this new year? Herod or the Magi? We must understand that indifference is not neutral, neutrality, but it is a response and actively places us in the camp of functionally despising the majesty of Jesus. Think about it in terms of the indifference of a marriage proposal. If somebody were to get down on their knee and propose to you today, and you said, mm, I don't know, let me think about it. That's the same thing as a rejection. When he comes, Jesus is going to be Lord of Lord, Lord of Lords, and God of all. And when he makes an invitation to us, it's an invitation to the wedding banquet of his second coming. Don't leave him hanging, but realize he demands a response from you in every area of your life. That's why C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, Christianity said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And ultimately, it's because of the fact that Jesus is coming again, not in the first advent, but in the second advent. And acknowledging the majesty of Jesus should shape our lives in preparation for that second coming. The second coming of Jesus will evidence how his majesty trumps all that the world exalts because everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God will be destroyed while God's heavenly rule and his heavenly kingdom will make its place amongst us.
The second coming will, will fully reveal ultimately the majesty of Jesus where he says every tongue will confess and every knee will bow confessing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father where we receive the reward of our response, either eternal life with an imperishable inheritance for those who've received him or eternal judgment and the second death for those who've rejected his lordship. The second coming is, has direct application to our daily lives. Well, what does it have in application for our daily lives? Well, what you find yourself doing, you need to know that it may lack the esteem of the world. When you're serving God, it may lack the esteem of the world, just like Isaiah was talking about at the beginning. But it's for the glory of God when done in faith and obedience to God's word. You're praying, you're giving, and you're going into all the nations to make disciples may not always come with the praise or the recognition of those around you, but you need to understand that God sees it all and he will reward your faithfulness and like the Magi will use your efforts as a part of his ongoing story to reveal the majesty of Christ to the world, bringing his eternal salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, let me end with this final thought in terms of how we order our lives towards God. It's all about the perspective that you allow yourself to have. The perspective that you have whenever you receive Jesus and acknowledge his majesty and then order your lives around him accordingly. And there was an excerpt from a uh, website called Sacred Structures which may give you a, a familiar story, but it's a story that we all need to have as encouragement as we go into this new year. It said, the story of the three bricklayers is a multifaceted parable with many variations, but is rooted in an authentic story. After the great fire of 1666 that leveled London, the world's most famous architect, Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. One day in 1671, Christopher Wren observed three bricklayers on a scaffold, one crouched, one half standing, and one standing tall, working very hard and fast. To the first bricklayer, Christopher Wren asked the question, what are you doing? To which the bricklayer replied, I'm a bricklayer. I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. The second bricklayer responded, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. But the third bricklayer, the most productive of the three, and the future leader of the group, when asked the question, what are you doing, replied with a gleam in his eye, I'm a cathedral builder. I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. And what I'm telling you today is that really at the end of the day, if we would begin to devote ourselves fully to the things that God himself esteems, then we'll align ourselves with his majesty and not just live for temporary things that God will ultimately judge, but we'll live for eternal things which God will ultimately reward. And we want to be those people who, as we're going out into the world in faithfulness, loving God, worshiping Him, serving Him, like the Magi, giving our time, our talent, our treasure, our relationships and holiness to Him, all unto the purpose of His gospel going into all the earth, that disciples might be made. Jesus says that ultimately 
ultimately what you're doing with your life counts and it matters because it's to the glory of God you're building a cathedral which will give his majesty great honor and great praise you need to live with that perspective you need to order your life in that way because he not only came in the first advent but he's coming again in the second we will give an account for our lives and we want to receive the reward of those who like the magi gave uh, his our all to him and so today as we end let's actually determine to do that in jesus mighty name let me pray first for those who say you know what in 2022 i want to give my all to god not being like herod picking and choosing what i will and won't obey out of god's word but i want to be like the magi giving that which actually cost me something in worship to the king of kings and lord of lords if that's you today i want to pray for you and ask god to give you the strength in the grace to do so. Father, I thank you for your word today and I pray that my brothers and sisters today would be freed from the subtle, the sneaky and the deceptive rebellions that have us like Herod trying to pick and choose that which would threaten our self-autonomy and instead we would like the Magi be all in, giving our time, our talent, our treasure. Father, our relationships to you in submission as we recognize your glory as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and you bring us into your glorious purpose. God, may we have not only the perspective like the Magi, but may we have the heart like the one who said, I'm building a great cathedral to the glory of the majesty of God. And God, may you encourage your people who've been weary. May you encourage your people who've been faint. And may you give them new strength to run with you each of their days in fruitfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. And for some of you today, you say, like Herod, you might have acknowledged the scripture before, you might have heard it before, but really, ultimately, you've still been living as a rebel. You've still been living as your own ruler, your own authority, and ultimately, you knew today that if you died and had to stand before God, he would have to judge you as a rebel, that you would deserve death and hell because of the ways you've broken his commands, picked and chose what you would and would not obey, and ultimately lived as an enemy of the Lord. And if that's you, but you say, today, I don't want hell, but I want to turn from my sin and turn to what Jesus came to do for me at that cross. Would you pray this prayer with me? Almighty God, I admit to you today that I've been a sinner. And like Herod, I've picked and chose what's been most convenient for me, what has really ultimately served me best rather than what served you. And I know that because of my sin, I deserve death and hell, but I don't want it and I'm asking you to forgive me today. I believe that you sent Jesus, your son, in that first advent to live the perfect life I should have lived. And on that cross died the sacrificial death that I should have died in my place. And because of his innocence, three days later, you raised him from the dead so that through my repentance, my turning from my sin, I could have forgiveness of those sins and new life in you. God, would you forgive me today? I give you my all today and say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And would you help me live for you from this point forward in honor of your majesty in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for my new life. Help me to love you. Amen. Now, the good news is, is if you prayed that prayer, God said he's made you a new creation. So would you go to our website, secondcitychurch.com slash new life. There you can find not only resources, but next steps of how to walk out this new life in Christ. And for the rest of us, let's go back into worship now, honoring again the one who's shown his majesty to us and has been the greatest benefactor that we'll ever know.
in Jesus' name.